0: It's Thursday, November the 24th. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Michael Toole will talk about the fourth wave, provide advice on boosters, as well as asking whether or not the Christmas forecasting suggesting that the current wave will soon be over is actually correct, he will also take a look at data suggesting the scale and impact of the anticipated long COVID crisis.
1: The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hi, I'm Mike Toole, and I'm going to give an update on COVID-19, the disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, focusing on Australia. Now, we are entering uh, the fourth uh, wave of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Now, despite disincentives to report positive rapid antigen tests, um, reported weekly cases increased by 31% um, as of last Friday uh, from the previous week to um, almost 80,000 cases. Now that's up 160% since um, four weeks earlier on the 21st of October. Now the national uh, effective reproductive rate is 1.17 and it's higher than one in all jurisdictions except the Northern Territory. The highest REF in the country is in Queensland where it is 1.37 which is the highest in any jurisdiction since July. Hospitalizations are also up almost 20% and deaths are up by 24%. Now hospitalizations have particularly increased In Queensland, and they're up 133% um, Mm. since the week of 4th of November. Now, if you look at Australia and compare it um, with the global situation, the cases per million population in the past seven days are ranked number six globally among countries with a population of more than half a million. Now, this is the graph showing daily new confirmed COVID-19 cases per million people. And you can see that um, COVID in Australia has largely been a 2022 phenomenon. You can barely see the little blips in the previous two years. And you could see on the right-hand side of the slide that we're in an upward trajectory. Um, Compared with a couple of other countries, you'll see that Singapore had a big peak, that's the blue line, in um, earlier this year at the same time as um, Australia. So that was in the middle of the winter. They've also now had a another peak caused largely by the subvariant XBB. Um, but you can see that that um, they have now come out of that surge. Australia's uh, cases per million population are far higher than, say, the United States and the United Kingdom. This is actually looking at um, the entire pandemic. So it's countries with an overall cumulative um, COVID-19 cases, more than 300,000 per million. And you'll see a couple of countries in uh, East Asia and the Pacific, including Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Taiwan, um, and also a cluster of countries in Europe. Um, but we have had a much higher um, rate of cases than anywhere in um, the Americas. Um, this is the current situation um, with hospitals. Now this uh, graphs a little bit confusing. The blue line is actually the um, number of cases, um, but the axis is on uh, the right. So we're up at around about 10,000 per day. Um, and you can see that hospitals or hospitalizations have started to increase. Um, this is the daily um, new confirmed COVID-related um, deaths. Um, now that graph has not yet started to move up, but if we look back at previous waves, Um, it's almost certainly going to increase a couple of weeks after the initial increase in cases. Now, the Australian um, Bureau of Statistics um, puts out um, monthly reports on excess mortality. Now, according to the October report, um, they looked at deaths that occurred between January and the 31st of July and which were registered um, by the ABS um, by the end of September. And that showed that there were um, more than 111,000 deaths, um, which is 17% more than the historical average. In July, there were almost 18,000 deaths, um, and that was 16% above the historical average. Now, um, you can see there that um, more than almost 16,000 of the deaths occurring in July were doctor certified and about 2,000 were coroner um, referred. Now, the data for 2022 are compared to a baseline comprising the years 2017 to 2019 and 2021. Um, 2020 is not included in the baseline because there was a significant decrease in deaths in that year. Um, Deaths due to dementia were up almost 20% above the baseline. Um, Deaths due to diabetes also up just over 20%. While the number of deaths due to cancer was above the baseline average in July, when it was age-standardised, the rate was below the baseline average rate. Now, a separate report uh, focusing on COVID-19 found that um, 12,500 deaths were reported where people uh, died with or from COVID-19. And that was up until the end of September. Um, Of those, the underlying cause of death was um, COVID in more than 80%. So when you hear sometimes on the media people saying, well, people, most people die with, not from COVID. That is incorrect. Um, so about 80% of people who die with the virus uh, have died because of that infection. Now, if you look at the global picture since the beginning of the pandemic, it differs from Australia in that there were a number of waves globally in 2020 and 2021. It's not until 2022 that the global trends uh, resemble um, the trend in Australia. Now, um, in terms of cases um, per million per population over the last 14 days, there was an increase of 25% globally, um, but the number of deaths um, declined. This is looking at uh, the current situation um, daily new confirmed COVID-19 cases per million. Um, that's a seven-day rolling average. And you'll see that the highest of the red countries are again mainly in um, East Asia and the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan and Taiwan, with a few countries in um, Europe. But um, the Americas are still lagging behind um, Australia and those countries. So, why is Australia having this fourth Omicron wave? One of the reasons is the emergence of new Omicron subvariants that uh, evade the immunity that we have gained from either vaccination or a natural infection. And these, um, there's quite a n- number of new subvariants. Most common are XBB and BQ1. In addition, during this time, we've had um, the easing of just about all mitigating um, uh, rules. Um, So people who are newly infected no longer have to isolate at home. Um, Mask mandates have been removed everywhere except in hospitals and aged care homes. And it's no longer mandatory to report a positive rapid antigen test. So the reported numbers are most likely underestimates. And there is the pervasive political narrative across the country that the pandemic is in the past tense. Um, Well, looking at the data, it's certainly not. Um, There's public fatigue and complacency. Um, You may have noted in the last couple of weeks, A number of um, chief health officers and the chief medical officer um, have recommended um, the use of masks indoors, uh, staying home if you um, test positive, um, but they're largely ignored. And um, you also may hear some of our politicians say we are highly vaccinated um, population. Well, that's not true. Um, we rank around about number 35 globally for uh, third dose boosters. Um, not sure of the ranking for fourth vaccine booster doses. Um, we also have a very low rate of um, two doses of vaccine among children 5 to 11. Um, there's almost um, universal failure to invest in improved indoor ventilation except in schools in Victoria. And this is probably the biggest gap in our response to this virus. And this continuing major stress on the healthcare system. There was initially a rather slow rollout of oral antiviral drugs, and they're still um, limited to people over the age of 70. Um, but the rollout is improving, as we'll see later. Vaccination rates. Now, last time I spoke to you about COVID was in August, um, in the middle of winter, and you'll see second dose around, um, this is of the whole population by the way, so about 85%, um, boosters around 55%, um, third dose and fourth dose uh, less than 20%. Now fast forward to November, basically they're not changed. And that's despite um, a big campaign funded by the federal government to the tune of $11 million um, with TV ads. Those TV ads appear not to have made much of a difference. Now, this shows vaccination coverage of eligible populations and not the whole population by state and territory. Now, if you look at uh, three doses, 72% of eligible adults um, have received um, a third dose. The highest is in West Australia, more than 80%, and the lowest is in Queensland, 65%. Now, if you look at adults over the age of 30 who have had four doses, the national figure is just under 43%, the highest is in Tasmania, um, 49%, and the lowest is um, Worryingly, in Northern Territory, 25%. But you should note that 73% of aged care residents have received four doses. Now, if you look at children aged 5 to 15 that have had two doses, nationally it's just over 50%, almost 53%. The lowest is again Queensland, 44.5%. And the highest by far is the ACT at 76%. Now, um, 15th of November, ATAGI issued several new recommendations. The main one was that they approved the Pfizer bivalent vaccine um, as an alternative vaccine um, to any of the currently available mRNA vaccines. Um, That's the original Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna bivalent vaccine, or the original Moderna vaccine. This is specifically for any booster dose in people aged 18 years or older. Um, Atagi stated that they don't have a preference for bivalent, so that's um, a vaccine that acts against the original virus and the BA1 subvariant. And the reason is that while clinical trials found that this Pfizer bivalent vaccine had improved, um, induced improved immunity against BA1, but BA1's virtually disappeared. And there are no data yet on whether this bivalent uh, vaccine will be more effective against the new subvariants like BQ1 and XBB. Booster doses um, should be given at least three months after the most recent um, vaccine dose or um, a confirmed uh, COVID infection. ATAGI did not recommend a fifth dose booster for any age group, although there are international data suggesting that there is a decline in immunity from the fourth dose after four to six months. Now I haven't put this on the slide because I don't want to challenge ATAGI's um, authority, but I personally have had a fifth dose. Um, I got the new Pfizer vaccine recently when I was in Cairo. Now, recent data from Israel uh, has shown that the COVID reinfection rate in that country has increased substantially from 20% to 35% over the last few weeks, coinciding with the rising prevalence of these new um, variants or subvariants. Over the last year, it's been noted in Israel that, that <clears throat> along with every newly introduced Omicron subvariant, there's been an increase in reinfections. So it's important to inform your patients if they have. Um, a case of COVID that they can get reinfected and therefore should take precautions, including getting a booster dose three months after that infection, if they've not already had one. The largest and most authoritative study of reinfections remains the large study of US veterans with a sample size over six million. It has now been published in a peer reviewed journal And it found that reinfections led to more severe illness than the first infections, measured by a range of adverse outcomes, including deaths. Now, the lead author recently clarified these findings in an interview with the New Scientist. And he said that the study compared people who had been infected at least twice with those who had been infected just once um, as, as whole groups, rather than comparing first and second infections in the same individuals. Therefore, the study was unable to conclude that second and third infections were more severe in individuals. However, the study clearly showed that the cumulative health effects of reinfections were worse than having a single infection. So that's at the population level. These adverse effects included hospitalizations and deaths, and multiple infections led to increased risk of heart, kidney, lung, pancreas, liver and uh, neurological disease. So the Australian TGA and the PBS have approved two oral antivirals, Paxlovid and Legabrio, for people over the age of 70 and for others with two defined risk factors for severe illness. Both should be started within five days of first-feeling symptoms. Now, we know that um, in the first few days of infection, a rapid antigen test, or RAT, may test negative. So people should be advised if, if symptoms continue despite a negative RAT, they should have a PCR test. Rebound infection has received extensive media coverage. When President Biden tested positive, again after testing negative following a course of Paxlovid. But studies have found that viral levels often resurge in around 10% of people who are not treated. But early data hint that rebound is even more pronounced after antiviral treatment. So I find this quite an optimistic slide. It shows um, the different colours are different jurisdictions but the total number of PBS scripts for oral um, uh, COVID-19 antivirals. Um, And you can see in uh, the middle of November, there's quite a pronounced increase, despite the number of cases being far lower than that peak in August. So it's encouraging that more and more people um, as a proportion are getting antivirals. So you may have heard a number of people say that, well, our fourth Omicron wave um, will be like Singapore's um, and it won't last long. And some have said it will, be, will come out of this wave before Christmas. Well, I don't think that's based on the facts. Um, there's big differences between Singapore and Australia. First of all, the political commitment by the Singapore government is much, much higher than it is by any Australian government. Singapore's third dose booster rate as a percentage of the entire population is 78% compared to 56% in Australia. Singapore still maintains a track trace treat policy, um, which has been abandoned in Australia. All people in Singapore who test positive must report that positive um, test they must isolate for at least 72 hours, then they can leave isolation if the rapid test is negative, but if it's still positive, they must isolate for seven days. Masks remain mandatory in Singapore's public transport system and all health-related facilities. So the big differences, Australians are much more vulnerable to infection than people in Singapore. Now, I'd like to... Um, Look at long COVID. Long COVID or post-acute COVID-19 syndrome is a multi-system disease causing disability due to long-term health effects manifesting as fatigue, difficulty in breathing and cognitive dysfunction. WHO defines long COVID as the persistence of symptoms for more than three months after the initial infection and which last at least two months. Now, Australia lacks a national um, long COVID database. So estimates of prevalence uh, rely on studies conducted here and overseas. Now, these studies report a broad range of prevalences, but a safe estimate in Australia would be between 5% and 10% three months after infection. Now, that equates to between half a million and a million Australians who have or have had long COVID, which may persist. Um, We have cases lasting up up to two years. Research suggests that long COVID is due to a sustained inflammatory response, which has no correlation with the severity of the initial illness. There's also a reduction in cortisol, which plays a major anti-inflammatory role in the body. Research indicates that females People aged between 30 and 49, ethnic minorities, and the socioeconomically disadvantaged are at higher risk of long COVID. In addition, smokers, the overweight and obese, and those with certain pre-existing conditions such as chronic lung disease are also at higher risk. There's good evidence now that a third um, dose or a booster of vaccine reduces the risk by up to 50%. Data from the US and UK show a significant impact of long COVID on the labour workforce. Extrapolating those studies to Australia, up to 300,000 Australians could be out of work or out of school due to long COVID by the end of the year. Currently, there's no evidence-based specific treatment for long COVID. WHO recommends a multidisciplinary approach Um, by a combination of primary care providers, specialists and allied health professionals such as physios. Corticosteroids are only recommended for children. And um, it's important to be cautious about exercise therapy as this may exacerbate symptoms in some patients. Given there have been more than 10.5 million COVID infections in Australia, um, even if the proportion of people who experience long COVID is very low, the total number will be very high. For example, using the estimate of 5%, um, and that's a prevalence supported by a significant amount of literature, means over 527,000 Australians will have developed or will develop um, long COVID. Children... There have been few rigorous studies of long COVID in children and the prevalence estimates vary very widely. Um, If we take the lowest published estimate of 6%, uh, Australia faces a large caseload of paediatric long COVID. Um, The latest Kirby Institute antibody study of COVID indicates that 80% of children under the age of five have been infected with the virus and around 65% of children aged five to 14. So using the 6% estimate, we can expect at least 78,000 cases of long COVID in kids under five and 120, or more than 120,000 cases in children five to 14. Now the health system is just not prepared for such a wave of disabling illness in children. Managing long COVID, put simply, the best way to prevent long COVID is to reduce the number of people getting COVID infection in the first place through a combination of vaccination and other um, health prevention uh, measures, particularly when cases are rising, and, of course, antiviral treatment. So antiviral treatments um, not only reduce the severity in acute covid but also reduce the risk of long COVID. And the public health measures um, are community-wide protective behaviours which are currently uh, underutilised and underemphasised in Australia. And they include the use of high-quality face masks um, in indoor settings, um, ventilation and air filtration, working from home where possible, isolating if you have symptoms consistent with COVID or if tested positive, and testing COVID prior to attending large events or locations where there are people at significant risk of COVID infection. So I'll finish with a number of points for action uh, that I think are important. First of all, we need a national monitoring or surveillance system to accurately estimate what is the extent of the disease burden in Australia caused by long COVID. Establish a clear and coherent national plan for dealing with the ongoing pandemic. Um, That plan should include a clear strategy of communication and engagement with the public so they understand that the pandemic is ongoing and to avoid ongoing high levels of disease and deaths and social and economic disruption. Governments should generously fund research across the spectrum of discovery science, prevention, treatment and care and the health, social and economic impact of long COVID, as well as evaluation studies of treatments and management approaches. Given the complexity of the diagnosis and management of long COVID, the current length of a routine GP consultation reimbursed by Medicare is not adequate. And so the government should consider establishing a specific Medicare item for consultations, uh, especially for initial diagnosis. And experts, for example, at the Mayo Clinic in the US recommend one hour for the minimum for the first consultation to exclude other possible causes of symptoms. Fund the expansion of the public long COVID specialty clinics, um, which at the the current clinics, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, have waiting lists um, up to one year. And these clinics should be established in all capital cities and major regional centres. Consider the inclusion of people with debilitating long COVID in the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And develop partnerships with community organisations, particularly working with culturally and linguistically diverse communities to educate and promote access to health services. Thank
0: you.